My name is Virginia. Robert. Haley. Hi, my name is Talinda. My name is David. It's Jackie. It's Rich. I'm Dr. Jennifer Ashton. I'm Melissa, and I lost my father to suicide. Suicide has touched my life. Suicide has completely turned my world upside down. Welcome to Life After Suicide. It's a podcast about finding grit and eventually happiness after sudden loss. Today's guests are here to talk about taking a really tough traumatic experience and actually making the most of it. Both of them found purpose in life and are happier for it. Dan Harris suffered from intense anxiety, and he was self-medicating. He had a full-blown panic attack on live national television. People who take cholesterol-lowering drugs called statins for at least five years may also lower their risk for cancer. But it's too early to, to prescribe statins slowly for cancer production. It led him to research and try meditation. Things aren't going to get better, but they may get lighter. The ABC News anchor eventually created the 10% Happier series of books, apps, podcasts, and will join us later in this episode. First up, Vic Strecker. He's a professor at the University of Michigan, and his daughter died from a rare heart condition as a teenager. I remember just thinking at that time, our life will never be normal again. It'll never be whatever I was thinking my life should be. Vic joined me in the studio to talk about how, in his time of despair, discovering the secret to finding happiness was actually finding purpose in life. Vic, thank you so much for coming uh, and talking to me um, for my podcast, Life After Suicide. I watched your TED Talk, which really, really was incredible, and um, I encourage anyone listening to go and listen to it as well. Um, you share a story about a lot of things, actually, but um, life with purpose after something deeply tragic happens that, quote unquote, breaks you open. Um, the phrase breaking open is something that really, unfortunately, I know very well. Um, and I think that's the perfect way to describe it. Um, but you also have... <laughs> so many initials after your name that you really have a unique perspective because you've not only experienced something personally, but you've also studied it academically. Um, You lost your daughter, Julia, when she was 19 years old. Um, First, I I would like you to share that story about her and her, what an amazing, beautiful person she was um, with our listeners, because I think that has to set up life with purpose. Sure. Yeah. So, uh, Julia was their second daughter, and uh, she was born in 1990, and she was born healthy. She used to like to say, I, I was a 10 out of 10, and uh, which is nice. And uh, then six months into her life, she caught a chickenpox virus, and, you know, most kids get the chickenpox, and it usually causes a fever and a rash for a day or two. But this chickenpox virus attacked her heart, and... We were on sabbatical in the Netherlands. I was actually doing research in the Netherlands. And suddenly, Julia started losing weight. And so she continued losing weight. And um, we went to see a doctor a couple of times. And they just thought it was kind of a GI issue, gastrointestinal issue. And then finally, they said, you know, maybe we should check her out more carefully. So she went into the hospital. And they discovered that her heart was completely ruined, actually, completely ruined. And it was almost as if you took a, a chicken breast as you're cooking and you pound it. It was, you know, so the walls of her heart were extremely thin and flabby and useless, really. And they suddenly just turned to us, took us in a room and said that she would be dead within a month. And so this was from I'm okay to, you know, maybe, you know, what will it take to get her back and shouldn't be too big a deal probably to she's going to be dead in a month and they said you should go home fly home and let her die at home and so we that day actually that night we took her out of the hospital because there's nothing they could do for her she's just a little baby and next morning we flew back home and um, at the University of North Carolina they took a careful look at her as a professor there at the time they said you know she might have a, a chance a remote chance uh, of getting a heart transplant. And that was interesting because, you know, suddenly we're in a very, very different world we didn't expect. Um, and life suddenly took this incredibly strange turn. And, you know, when I read your book as well, Jen, I thought your life did that same kind mm-hmm. of very strange turn so suddenly. And 
I remember just thinking at that time, our life will never be normal again. It'll never be whatever I was thinking my life should be. So I, I, we don't need to get into great detail about it, but she became the first child to get a new heart in the southeastern part of the United States. She got it on Valentine's Day, wow, uh, which is crazy. Um, so interesting. And But even the decision to list her for a heart was a hard one because we were told that half of the kids waiting for a heart died before they got one. Right. And then if you got a new heart as a child, your chances of living five more years were only 50%. So it was 50% times 50%. She had a chance of becoming five. Her chance was only 25%. So we had to ask ourselves, should we list her in the first place? Right. Should we allow her to die in peace at home, as the people in the Netherlands suggested, or should we go through this heroic effort? And we thought at our dinner table, what we call the gathering place, our dinner table is where we still get together and we talk about our day. How'd your day Mm -hmm. go? And uh, we asked along with our extended family, what do you think we should do? And we decided that if we could give her a life worth living, that it would be worth doing. And so then you start asking this existential question, what is a life worth living? And we started thinking a life that had some goals in it, some purpose in it, um, some degree to, of mastery in it, some connectedness with other people. So you started thinking about life worth living and life on purpose with her. With her. And you know, then she, as she started growing up with this new heart, we started living every day as if it might be her last day. And that was very special for us. You know, what's interesting, you've experienced a sudden and horrific loss. We have too, but every loss is different, mm-hmm. I think. This, Absolutely. You know, if you've seen one death, you've seen one death probably. And for us, um, this whole situation was so life-changing in the sense that we started living our lives as if it may be our last day too. And it turns out, looking back on it, that w- that's a very stoic thing to do, that The ancient Stoics, 2,000 years ago, Seneca, Marcus Aurelius, they were Stoic philosophers. And Marcus Aurelius would write, along with Seneca, would write about living every day as if it might be your last. Like imagine Marcus Aurelius waking up and he's having breakfast. He's having granola with Mrs. Aurelius. (laughs) And, uh, you know, he's going, I'm going to die today. And then Mrs. Aurelius says, would you stop that? You do it every single day. And and he said, no, no, I'm going to die today. No, you always come home and you're alive. And uh, and he says, no, I do this so that I live a bigger life. And when we started thinking about Julia and that she might die any day, we never knew. We're going to give her a big life. We started saying, why don't we do this with us? Why are we living as if we're asleep? Why do we live as if we'll live forever? And so that's a very stoic concept to think. And Stoics aren't like Spock or something, you know, on Star Trek. (laughs) Stoics actually lived gigantic lives because they would basically say, I'm just here for this brief period of time, this very, very brief period of time on the planet. I'm going to live the biggest life I can. And that's how we lived with Julia. For 19 years. For 19 years. And then, uh, sadly, she died when she was 19. She wanted to give back. Um, she had received a second heart transplant when she was nine. And, you know, we don't have to go into detail about that, but that was another horrific, very, very near-death experience for her. And when she had gone through that, she said, I'd like to give back. And I said, in what way? She said, well, the people at the hospital have taken such good care of me. I said, do you want to be a doctor? She said, no, I want to be a nurse. The nurses are the ones who cared about me so much and would talk to me so much. So she got into nursing school at the University of Michigan, and and she had this very transcending purpose, very deep purpose. And she was very humble about it, but she really wanted to become a nurse. And and then she got pretty tired out. We knew that she was – you know, tired a lot, but that wasn't abnormal. But on spring break, we took her to the Caribbean, um, and we took our older daughter as well to the Caribbean, and we had dinner at the gathering place, but it was like on the beach. It was so nice. And we really tried to just give her the biggest life we could. And we were walking on the beach, and she went back to her room. But before she went back, she turned to us and she said, I'm so happy now that I could die. 
And, you know, some people say that, just like, I'm so happy that I can die. And that night she did. She never woke up. She just died suddenly of a heart attack. And uh, so we were in the Caribbean and we came back. And when that happened, then um, I went through this, you know, very dark period. You know that that period, that valley. Um, and uh, we went through grief counseling because, you know, we – well, one thing, I, I didn't want to get a divorce. Right. <laughs> it's a funny thing. Right. And I heard, I just read somewhere, you know, a long time before, and I don't even know if it was accurate, but I, I remember telling the grief counselor, I said, I don't want to get a divorce. And, you know, 80% of parents I heard get a divorce after the loss of a child. And uh, and she laughed and she said, yeah, but 50% of people get divorced anyway. anyway right. I mean, it, come That's on. Right. It's, it's, you know, not yeah. that un- abnormal to get a right. divorce. So, duh. And... Uh, but she said, here's, here's a little piece of advice. If you two judge how the other person grieves, you will get a divorce. You will break up. Because as soon as you start judging grief, it, it's so, everybody has to go on their own journey. It's a very individual journey. You need support. There's no doubt. But it's, and you know this more than anyone now. You've thought about it. You've talked to some of the world's experts on this. But I do know personally that the best advice I ever got after Julia died in terms of maintaining our relationship was that you have to let the other person grieve in their own way, in their own time, on their own journey. And so my wife, who's an artist and sculptor and gardener, did those things. And I went to northern Michigan and I, you know, we have a cabin up there on Lake Michigan and I just started drinking and eating myself to death. So that was my journey. That was despite being in counseling. Yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, she said, do what your the counselor said. You know, you're going to go on your own journey. I went, great. I'm going up north. Right. That's what we say in Michigan. Right, we go right. up north to go <laughs> to northern Michigan. Right. And uh, it was still very early spring. And um, I had three weeks after Julia died, I was trying to get back really fast, back into things. And I was giving a keynote address at this occupational medicine conference. And I remember there was a speaker who had been speaking just ahead of me. And he's giving all these stats. He's an occupational medicine doc. And he was talking about loss of productivity all the time and how you lose X number of days if you get sick and different kinds of illness and how many days. And then if you start having like loss of loved ones, like loss of a parent, how many days you're typically off and loss of productivity or divorces and loss of productivity and all those things. And then he stopped and he took a breath and he said, and he had, of course, a PowerPoint slide about this, but if you lose a child, you never become productive again. And I was the next speaker and I wanted to say, well, I won't say what I wanted to say, (laughs) but I, because I'm from the Midwest and I'm polite not really, but you know the the idea was I really wanted to say something to him, but I didn't. And then I came back and I found myself in Lake Michigan, two miles out at five fifteen in the morning, on a kayak, which is really stupid. I mean, I found myself way out, and I was wondering whether I should continue kayaking onto Wisconsin, which is another eighty miles. So that's not really very realistic, but uh, I found myself way out very early in the morning and I found myself asking, will I ever really be productive again? You know, as, as much of a chip on my shoulder as I had after that little quip from this doctor, I thought, God, maybe I never will be productive again. I'm drinking all the time. I'm eating way too much. I'm watching like the dumbest TV on the world. I'm I, I mean, I'm just like watching nothing on television. I started caring about what Kim Kardashian was wearing. You know, I mean, oh, really, to that's me, that's pathognomonic. <laughs> well, I just think as, as soon as I start watching, you know, reality shows like I was watching and just drinking and eating too much, I thought I'm going to die. I'm not living a life. Did and you want to die at that point? I wasn't really sure. I, 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 I'll, I'm just being as honest and transparent as I can. I wouldn't say that I was suicidal. I would say that I had absolutely zero care for living, absolutely no desire to live or to die. I did not care. So being way out on Lake Michigan, and it's so smooth and beautiful, and the sun was just coming up, and I thought, God, it's so beautiful. Maybe I should just keep kayaking because I don't really care, you know? And then the sun came up, 
and all the water, this is absolutely true, and I'm a scientist, and I don't know how to explain this myself, but all the water around me started glittering, and of course that's natural, that's physics, but at the same time, as the sun came up, I felt my daughter Julia in me. I felt like she was right dead in me, alive in me, I should say. And she said, Dad, you have to get over this. And it wasn't like, get over this. It was like, you have to get over this. You have to get over yourself. And the University of Michigan, where I'm a professor, had said, wow, you lost your daughter. You know, it's as tough as it gets. You know, you don't have to teach next semester. Even after that, if you don't want to teach, take off, you know, as much time as you need. And I was. And I was feeling sorry for myself. And... That's not to judge anybody, by the way. It's just saying I had to realize that I was focused on myself so much and I was feeling so bad for myself and I was eating and drinking to drug myself and watching you know, too much TV to drug myself that I had to finally say, I have to get over this. And my daughter was telling me to do that. I paddled back two miles back to shore and uh, – I called the University of Michigan almost right away, and I said, I want to teach as soon as I can, and I'm going to teach every student of mine as if they're my daughter. Wow. And that changed my whole life right there, Jen. I mean, completely. That is such a powerful, powerful story, and I think probably resonates with so many people. I mean, you know, you you lost your daughter to a, a medical condition, but to parents who lose children to accidents or to suicide, yeah. I'm sure a lot of those same thoughts and feelings and emotions uh, are the same. And, um, you know, in your TED Talk, Vic, you talk about being broken open. Right. Was that the moment that you were broken open? Or- it was. It was. And when we talk about being broken open, it's really my ego that broke open. So, you know, we all have egos and they're kind of our psychological immune system. They're really helpful for us. Our protectors. Yeah, they're our protectors because if somebody says you're not a good person, we have this ego that says, well, I'm okay. Or even advertisements, you should buy this or do that. We have this ego wall that kind of keeps things out and bounces things back. But sometimes that wall gets too thick. And one might argue now in today's political environment that our walls are as thick as they ever have been. But when really difficult things happen, that wall can break open. Uh, This Buddhist teacher for millions of people, Ram Dass, uh, suffered a severe stroke when he was in his 60s. And he said, my ego is broken open. I can see clearly now. And so when you have this ego wall, almost like a castle wall, um, almost as if you're fortress. a yeah, yeah. fortress. Um, suddenly, when that breaks, crumbles, you um, you can start seeing things clearly. If you look at even at organizations, imagine a company that's gone through a near bankruptcy or a bankruptcy. They start seeing clearly. Suddenly, people start talking to people in a more real way. When something really difficult happens to an organization, to all the way to an individual or to a family, they start just getting real. And that's what broken open means, getting real. And in terms of what you know as an academic about behavior, do you think it's a prerequisite for growth or eventually living a life on purpose to have that breaking open moment? What a great question, Jen. By the way, I have to say, first of all, I'm really enjoying this conversation. Thank you. Um, I don't. But that was exactly the thought that I had. I started asking that very question. Do you have to be broken open? And I write about this in my book because um, I think there are three ways of kind of being, of seeing more clearly. One way might be to be broken open when something difficult happens. But we don't want that to happen. We shouldn't seek that necessarily. Um, Another way might be just if you want to open the door in a way, the castle wall door. You know, I'm thinking politically, for example. Watch some news station. Talk to somebody you disagree with. See whether you can allow them in, you know, for at least half an hour. And check that out just to see. Um, So that's another way. But the, the final way is transcendence. You can transcend or rise above your castle wall, above your ego. And actually, I've 
started studying with a whole group of people at the University of Pennsylvania, with at UCLA, with some other people who have been thinking a lot about this concept of transcendence because I, I think transcendence is such a p- powerful way to rise above your ego, to start seeing clearly without necessarily having to be broken open. So how do you do that? <laughs> so how do you transcend your ego? Well, there are a couple ways that we actually do it experimentally. We even put people into MRI and we, you know, you're familiar, yep. of course, with MRI. Functional MRI? Yeah, functional yeah. magnetic resonance imaging. So we put people in and we have them engage in loving kindness meditation. And when they're engaged in loving kindness meditation, part of that process is actually wishing kindness and peace and happiness to people you don't even like, some people who you have horrible times with and wishing that sort of loving kindness to other people helps you transcend. Another way we found helps you transcend actually is thinking about yourself when you're at your best. So what are you like when you're at your best at work? What do you like when you're at your best with your family or in your community? And then who are the people that matter most in your life? Who are the people here at work? Um, And if you start applying your best self to what matters most, you're starting to build a purpose. So we often ask people to think more about their purpose and purposeful core values that they hold deeply and personally while they're in MRI. And we find that more blood flow goes to a part of the brain that's very human. It's in the prefrontal cortex. And in fact, the official word term is ventral medial prefrontal cortex or VMPFC. You can just Google it, Mm -hmm. VMPFC, you'll get it. But that's a part of the brain that relates to the self. And it's a very, very human part of the brain. Of course, other primates have this, but we have more of this than any other primate by far. And when we have people thinking about their core values and what matters most in their life and their best self, more blood flow goes to this prefrontal cortex. And it's the same place and same uh, activity that's going on when you're engaged in loving-kindness meditation. That's fascinating. I want to go back for a second, unfortunately, to the painful part, to the people who have suffered a loss. Sure. Um, When I was reading about you and and you've done such prolific work um, in health behavior, when you talk about that fortress and being broken open, of course, that's – exactly how I felt when my ex-husband and my children's father uh, died by suicide. Um, We had been married for 22 years, and we had a very amicable, as I like to say, evolved divorce. We Mm -hmm. actually were friends. Um, It wasn't the War of the Roses, and we were really great co-parents. And I felt completely shattered, broken open, as you said. And as— You felt shattered— when he committed suicide, yeah, yeah. not not during no, the divorce. No. The divorce actually went smoothly. Well, I mean, maybe that relatively. was a little bit of a prelude, um, yeah. but to to a mini shattering, uh-huh. just because it was um, well, it feeds into a lot of the ego that you talk about, right. um, which is why I'm curious to get your professional and personal take on this. But what I realized after his suicide was that in order in order for me to recover and my focus being on not becoming a second tragedy for my children because now I was the only parent they had. And I know just from child development and what we learn as scientists and professionals. By the way, that is so self-transcending. It is? What you just said. Really? Well, you were saying, now I'm the only parent and it's up to me to help keep these two children active and healthy and flourishing. That's a very self-transcending thought. I didn't realize that. But but I will tell you that if I hadn't had them, I don't think I don't think I would have been able to put the pieces back together again because right. I was I was very aware <clears throat> that if I collapsed or didn't recover or you know that they were watching me as every parent knows this intuitively even though we might not like to yeah. admit it you know our parent our children watch us and they listen they probably watch more than they listen right um, and my children were going to be looking to me to see if I could recover, then could they recover? And for me, part of that recovery was exactly what you described, you know, coming back to work, 
both in my medical practice and at ABC. Um, I went back on the air at six weeks after and went back part-time to my medical practice at two weeks. That was very therapeutic to me because it gave me a tangible purpose, right? Like it, okay, I'm going to go to my office and see patients and that Mm -hmm. is very tangible. Or I'm going to go back to ABC and that's tangible. Although I'll tell you, Vic, I, I wasn't sure I was going to be able to do that. Just very, very much like you would experience. But what really changed for me was when I realized that to recover, I had to embrace all the imperfect parts of my, I don't know, myself, right? Not my ego, not the protectors, myself. Mm -hmm. And um, Because you're broken open, you can see clearly and you're willing to do that. And I had done a really good job for my entire life of kind of putting that behind. You know, you give an analogy of a fortress. I like the analogy of a Hollywood movie set, you know, Mm -hmm. that you see something in the front and then if you walk around the back – (laughs) <laughs> Not so pretty. Right, <laughs> That's right. where all the wood is and all that stuff. And when I started to really recover and find my purpose, and I think my children can say this too, I know they can, it was when we walked around the back of that movie set and we looked at everything and we said, okay, this is us, this is life, and this is what we have to work with, and now let's move forward. Does that? Did life become more interesting then? I think we can all say that for sure. Yeah. And and I'll tell you that as a doctor, um, the, the comparisons you give to someone with cancer or someone with mm-hmm. a stroke, those people have experienced this. And I would know those people, right? Yeah. Some of them are my friends. Some of them yeah. are my patients. And it, prior to Rob's death, I almost had a sense of envy for them because I knew that they were plugged in. And I thought... I know I'm not, but how can I get that? I'm sure you've spent some time, you know, through your work with hospice care. And when you speak with people who are in hospice, the, those individuals are living life bigger than they ever have in many cases. Sometimes they're not, but very often you see people who go, I just wish I'd lived my life this way a little more, where I focus more on my relationships and focus more on love and my community and the things that really matter the most. Instead, I ignore that, tried to go up the ladder constantly, and you know what have I gotten for it? Well, I've gotten what everybody else has. Do I really want to be the richest person in the graveyard? Maybe not the most important thing to do. Right. You hear that a lot in hospice. And so I've always felt that people in hospice have so much to teach people who are not in hospice Absolutely. about living. And you know, we had this interesting situation with Julia where – you know, she kind of lived this this 19-year life where we didn't know how long she would be around. Maybe she'd be 90, maybe she would be three and die. We didn't know. So in not knowing, we start living our lives more in technicolor than in black and white. And it really changes you. And I have this sense that that happened to you as yeah. well. At, when I was interviewing people for my um, book, Life After Suicide, two of the very, very brave um, women that shared their stories with me uh, had lost children mm-hmm. to suicide. Yeah. And as horrific as the experience that my family went through, and especially my children mm-hmm. losing their father when they were just 17 and 18, I I literally can't imagine anything worse than losing a child to any reason, for mm-hmm. any reason. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like you will never be the same Again, does the pain ever go away? (laughs) Well, it's such a weird question. And it's a great question, by the way. It's so weird because I ask myself that a lot. But at first, I was so worried about that. And some kind of friend of ours, I remember at Shiva for our Mm -hmm. daughter who had lost a child, said, you will never – he said it – put it this way. He said, you will be sad every day for the rest of your life. This was not a good not thing helpful. to tell a person. <laughs> I'm right? sorry, but I went. Oh, no, don't. You, you know what? Don't you know all, you want to hear my shiva yeah. nightmare. Yeah. A, a woman who actually is a patient mm-hmm. came to my shiva for for Rob, and literally as she stepped, I don't even think both feet were in my apartment yet, and she said, "I'm so sorry." You know, when I told my husband what happened, he said, "Well, that's what happens when women divorce their husbands." 
Oh, you know, and yeah. as I say in the book, file that one under not helpful things yeah. that are not helpful. Yeah. Right. So just as someone said to you, you will never be the same again. Yeah. And, you know, you asked me whether I, I still get sad. I do. I think about her every day, but I embrace that. This has been nine years now since she's died. Every single day I do think about her. And in some way, I suppose I might feel sad, but I embrace that sadness because it's because I still love her. I'm worried about the day that I don't feel sad or mm-hmm. think about her. A person put it put this in a really cool way to me a long time ago. Said it's almost as if you're a tree and a boulder is rolling down on a mountain and this boulder's rolling down the mountain and smashes into you and just smashes the heck out of your tree and the boulder just stays there and you end up growing around the boulder and you get gnarly you get a little different. You're not the same. You don't look like a perfect tree anymore. But at the same time, you have tremendous character and you are surviving and not only surviving, but thriving. And that's that's what I really love about this life. And by the way, I do love my life now at least as much, if not more than I did before. And I have my daughter, Julie, to thank for that. We'll take a quick break in this conversation. We'll be back in a minute. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. Have you found that everyone has a purpose and sometimes they just haven't articulated it to themselves? <laughs> no, I don't find that. That's such a great question, though. And a lot of people ask, well, is purpose something you just uncover in yourself? Is it always there? I don't know. I mean, I'm not an expert in that. I do know that some people do not seem to have any kind of purpose. They're nihilists. You know, mm-hmm. that's kind of the definition. I don't have any purpose or direction. Increasingly, unfortunately, we see more and more people from college age through seniors with little or no purpose in their lives. And we know, for example, that that's the, the purpose that people have has dropped in college students. And at the same time, directly related, I believe, is a doubling of suicidal ideation in college students. In 2009, uh, it was, I believe, it was... 7% of people had thought about killing themselves in the last 12 months. These are college students. And this is a study that's been conducted of over 200,000 college students in 180 colleges and universities. In 2018, it was 13%. It's doubled. Wow. What's going on? 13%. So I look at my class of 200 students, and I'm just thinking, wow, over 20 of these students have thought about killing themselves in the last 12 months. So I tell them, if you are thinking about this, even thinking, considering it at all, talk to me. Um, Have you had anyone take you up on that? Oh, yeah, sure. Wow. Yeah, sure. And I've had, unfortunately, two students commit suicide in the last two years. So, I, well, Let's talk about that age group a little more, Vic, because, you know, first of all, that's my children's age group. But uh, I, half my practice is under the age of 21. Wow. And I think a lot of people who are listening, um, know someone in that age group. Mm-hmm. If you connect it to purpose and and the impact that having a purpose can have, maybe as a prophylaxis against suicidal ideation or at yeah. least some of the social um, s- circumstances that can lead someone to consider suicide, mm-hmm. should we start – teaching purpose in in our adolescence? Should we start talking to our children or students or, you know, people that we know in that age group about having a purpose, just like we talk to them about, oh, by the way, smoking is bad for you. Uh, Don't do drugs. You know, be active. You know, should we add purpose to the list? Maybe we should be talking about how they should design their lives. 
Let me put it this way. For my college freshmen, I tell them to take the resume out that their parents wrote for them and tear it up. (laughs) Because now you're a human being, and it's my job to help you figure out how to design your life. So just as you use design principles of trying something and failing, oh, let's see if this cup can be a foot tall and an inch wide. Oh, that's not a good cup to hold coffee. Well, that's a design flaw, and you found out by trying it. Try with your life. Go out and try new things. Also, go out and learn new things. Learn the sorrows and the joys of the world. Learn about love and compassion. Learn about greed and avarice. Learn about lots of things. Friedrich Nietzsche in the 1800s said, he, in the beginning of his book, Thus Spoke Zarathustra, he had this wonderful metaphor. It started with a camel, and it said, the camel said, load everything on my back, all the joys and the sorrows of the world. And the camel then metamorphosized into a lion. The lion then goes out into the wilderness and finds a dragon. The dragon on every scale said, thou shalt. In other words, it was our society saying, you should be a doctor. You should be a lawyer. You should do this. You should do that. You should be this religion or that religion. You should obey this government's laws or that government's laws. The lion slays the dragon. And when the lion slays the dragon, metamorphosizes one more time into a child somebody who's innocent and builds an authentic purpose in their life. And I view my students as camels. So I don't say, you need to have a purpose now. I say, you need to figure out how to design a purpose in your life. And so I love gap years. I love students taking gap years. I love students going overseas. I love students going into the inner city to help other people or into rural America or other places. Help other people transcend yourself. Stop thinking about yourself and start thinking about what the world is like. And the more you do, the more you'll become a lion. And then that lion will be able to go out and say, I am going to create my own very authentic purpose. And that, I believe, is where real happiness comes. Happiness doesn't come from, you know, asking the question, how can I be happier? Happiness is a side effect of having a purpose and being aligned with that authentic, transcending purpose on a daily basis. Do you feel like as parents or as a society or even in academia, we have set up this precarious tinderbox by, um, you know, making, sending the message to high school students, for example, that when they apply to college, so think about that, when they're 17 years old, <laughs> they should be putting together an application that not only is impressive, but really shows the college or university or school that they want to go and matriculate at who they are as a person. There are 40-year-olds who don't know who they are as a person, right? right? But we're, somehow we're expecting 17-year-olds to really jump right off the paper, so to speak, and and impress some admissions committee with who they are as a person. Yeah, this has been my curse that I keep gravitating to problems that are so strange. In the (laughs) 1970s, I was studying stress, and that's when very few people studied the concept of stress, and most doctors It wasn't in then. Whatever. Yeah, so we kept studying this, and we found that people who had a lot of stress at work were three times more likely to die over a 10-year period than, you know, things like that. And then after Julia died, I I hadn't even thought about the term purpose in life practically until she died. And I started reading Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. And and he talked a lot about transcendence and purpose. And I thought, wow, I really need to think about this purpose thing. And I started studying it more, just looking up, you know, the research. And there was a lot of compelling research. I mean, if this were a diet – you would say, wow, okay, we need that Mediterranean diet. You know, people wow. with a Mediterranean diet live longer while people with purpose live longer. And then you'd go, okay, well, maybe rich people have purpose or people who are healthier and that's why they live longer. And, you know, just like a Mediterranean diet could be a lot of other things or like smoking kills you, but maybe the non-smokers are variables. healthy. What we call confounding variables. And so we, we follow people in control then statistically for age and gender and income and education and health status and health behaviors and all those things. And you still find it stays. It doesn't go away. You can't make it go away. That's when you start going, okay, we should maybe think about trying to improve people's purpose in life. And sure enough, when we do that, and we can, people absolutely can build a stronger purpose in their life, a better strength of purpose. All we mean by purpose, by the way, is if you start thinking about what matters most in your life, what are the things that matter most? Rachel Raymond, this amazing preventive care doctor at UC San Francisco, 
um, said, often purpose is just right around the corner. It's just by turning around, you look at a person and go, that's right, that's my purpose. You don't need to go to northern India and meditate in a cave for six months to find your purpose very often. So often it's just right around you. So as opposed to saying, I'm just going to be the best person I can be, say, I'm going to set a goal. I'm going to teach every one of my students as if they're my own daughter. I am going to help people find purpose in their lives. I'm going to be an engaged husband or father or son or you know grandfather now. Uh, whatever those things are, for that individual – Think about what matters most, set a goal around it, that becomes your purpose, and then try it out for a while, just like a suit. Just try it, see mm-hmm. if it fits, and if it doesn't fit, try a new purpose. You get to choose, and that's another thing I loved about your book. Toward the end, you started talking about choice. I do believe, and I might be wrong, but I think we are who we choose to be, and I think we should then be very careful who we choose to be. What advice would you give to people who are struggling to find their purpose, in particular those who sure. are dealing with with a loss? Sure. Well, one thing I would do is just what I did when I came back to the shore from Lake Michigan two miles out on my kayak. By the way, I, I found out that it was Father's Day that day. I was by wow. myself, and I'd been by myself for weeks and I shouldn't have been really, but I came back. I hadn't followed the calendar at all, and then I looked and noticed that it was Father's Day, and that was her gift to me. I know it. And But the first thing I did was write down the things that mattered most to me, uh, and I wrote down things like our older daughter, uh, my spouse, the world, uh, my students, and then because this is what I was thinking. I'm a behavioral scientist. If I can't help myself, what good am I? I really need to work on myself here more than I ever have. This is like my calling for the last, you know, 45, 50 years. I have to fix myself now. So um, I wrote down all these things that mattered, and then I said, I'm going to set a goal around those things. So that's one step, writing down what matters most. Um, Another, and this will sound really morbid, but I do this. I was in Australia last year for a month in Adelaide, and uh, I did all these workshops throughout Adelaide on helping people find purpose. And I have them draw a headstone on a piece of paper, any, any way you want. Make the headstone cool or not, you know. And then put down your name, died today. What would you want on that headstone about you? What would you want people to say at your memorial service? So this is this mortality salience. We're making mortality. I have all my students doing this every semester. They go, oh, we hate this. And then at the end they go, wow, that was really cool. I hadn't thought about my life in that way. So this sort of headstone test is another way to think about this. Um, So the idea, in other words, is to think about the fact that you have this finite amount of time on this planet. It's not long. It doesn't matter if it's three years or 300 years. It's still nothing. So, and I'm convinced, you know, meta, the medical model and the public health model are kind of saying, you can live to be 150. Guess what? And that's the promise of all, all doctors and media, you know, pretty much. I don't know about you, but, you know, the, you can live longer. And, but my question then is, if you can live longer, how would you live better? I want to thank Vic for coming from Michigan to visit with us. Next up, my ABC friend and colleague, Dan Harris. We are both proponents of the power of meditation, and we're going to talk about how to become 10% happier. Dan, thank you so much for coming on this podcast. I wanted you on because your 10% happier book, and I would just say movement, Um, I think really taught me a lot in kind of how I approached life after suicide. Um, And really the focus on this podcast, as it is in the book, is on the life part. Mm. Um, So I guess I just want to start by finding out what was your low point in life, because most people have one by the time you're in your 40s. Um, And was it the trigger that led you to write the book and start mindfulness and and your meditation? Well, I did have a panic attack on national television, uh, which was inconvenient uh, and unpleasant and embarrassing. Uh, 
Was that the low point in my life? I don't know. I have to say that um, I've had a charmed life. Probably jinxing myself. But, uh, yeah, I've had things by any objective measure that you could call, quote, unquote, bad happen to me. But most, you know, I, I, I was raised by two successful, loving parents who are still together. Um, uh, I'm, you know, male and white and uh, and have all of the advantages that come from that. And uh, uh, yeah, so I've had depression and anxiety in my life as well. So there have been, I mean, the first time I went to see a shrink, I was a little kid and I was really upset about, or like para- paralyzed by fear of nuclear war and I was part of a big landmark study yes I was part of a big landmark study at Harvard where my parents worked on uh, about the impact of the cold war on kids so I've had depression and anxiety my whole life but that's congenital I think um not situational uh in other words I, it's not like I had you know direct experiences of trauma in my family or anything like that so so I that's a long way of saying I've had lots of things that I've I've had ups and downs in my life, but I feel like a fair, if I'm going to, this is kind of multi-layered, but if you look at it objectively, if that's even possible, I've had a really charmed life. Although it is also true uh, that um, that's not even, objectivity in these matters is kind of unfair and maybe not so useful because the in, inner truth of our own lives is really, at the end of the day, all that matters. Right. A hundred percent. So as you were saying that, I was – the only thought that was going across my mental ticker was, well, yes, you've had a charmed life, but true, true and unrelated to the anxiety and depression and crises or crisis that you have had to deal with. And I think the parallel to that – which definitely, you know, Rob's suicide kind of brought to the forefront is, you know, people saying, well, I mean, his life looked so good. You know, he was a doctor. He was uh, very attractive. He was healthy. You know, it was two weeks after our divorce. He was dating. He, you know, uh, none of that matters, right? None of that matters. You can still have all of those things and take your life. You can still have all of your things and have anxiety and depression. Um, so I think that's a, actually a really important layer to, the, to life. The brain, I mean, you know more about this than I do because you have medical training, but the brain's an organ just like any other organ and it can misfire and malfunction. And uh, yeah, it's, it's tricky business being alive. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's an understatement. Part of why I so wanted to talk to you for, for this podcast is because I, of course, remember when your book 10% Happier came out and I did not know about your on-air panic attack um, before then, like many people. Um, you and I had worked together here at ABC and I just didn't know that that had happened to you. Um, but for you, that must have been a major life Oh, yeah. Crisis. Yeah, yeah. It was huge uh, for me uh, in my little world. Um, uh, it was 2004 on Good Morning America in that set that you and I work on all the time. Uh, right in the corner, uh, I was – they used to have – now it's a big room for an audience on the second floor of Times Square Studio. and We have a live audience in there. But it used to be that where we did the whole sh- – most of the first hour of the show. And there was a the main anchor desk on one side um, – and that's where Charlie Gibson and Diane Sawyer sat. And then on the other side of the room, um, against the windows, there was a little satellite anchor desk where the news uh, anchor sat and did the morning headlines. Back then, the news anchor was uh, Robin Roberts, who's now the main host of the show, one of the main co-hosts of the show. <clears throat> I was filling in for her that morning, and I'd done it a million times. Uh, so I didn't. I wasn't nervous going into the day. But right in the middle of my little... Uh, shtick of, you know, reading five or six news headlines off of the teleprompter, I just started freaking out. I couldn't breathe and my uh, my mouth dried up, my palms were sweating. And the more physical 
manifestations there were of my fear, the more mental ramifications there were. I started to psychologically freak out. And the more I was freaking out in my head, the more my body was freaking out. It was a really tight, vicious circle. And so I, I had to quit right in the middle. And I had the wherewithal. If you look at the video, it's available on YouTube, <laughs> which is awesome. Um, if you look at the video, it's not, you know, a lot of people, especially people who have never had panic, look at it and say, you know, it's not that bad. And that's actually true because I had... I, I knew I had a way out. It wasn't a great way out, which was to quit right in the middle and to squeak out, you know, back to you, Charlie. And I think I said Charlie and Robin, even though it was Charlie and Diane there. And uh, yeah, afterwards, um, I was, you know, everybody was asking me what Charlie got up and ran over. Everybody got up and asked me what was wrong. And I kind of lied and said, I don't know. Uh, but I went backstage and my mother called me and said, you just had a panic attack. My mother's a physician. Wow. And... Um, or maybe I called her. I can't remember, but she had been watching and she knew exactly what had happened. And uh, so the I went to see a shrink and the shrink asked me a bunch of questions to try to figure out what had gone wrong. And one of the questions was, do you do drugs? And I said, yes. And he was like, all right, mystery solved, idiot. Um, and the backstory of that is that I had spent a lot of time as a war zone, uh, a war correspondent in war zones all over the world. And after 9-11, I had gotten depressed as a consequence of that, and then I had self-medicated with cocaine. I was not high when I was on the air that morning, and I wasn't even using cocaine that frequently, but as good, like, sort of synthetic squirt of the adrenaline I was withdrawing from when I would come home from the war zones. Um, uh, so I would occasionally use it on, you know, party nights on the weekend or whatever. Anyway, the doctor explained that. I had artificially boosted the level of adrenaline in my brain as a consequence of using cocaine, and it upped the odds for me to have a panic attack. So, yeah, I would say that was a low point, and it set me on a weird and windy path that ultimately led me to something that's been very useful, which is meditation. By the way, I've had panic attacks like that before public speaking, and even, I think, even before going on the air at times, and it is totally random, and it doesn't make sense because this is what we do for a living. Um, but you're right. Once it starts, it's really, really hard to rope it back in. Uh, on two levels. One, once it starts in the moment, it's hard to cut it short uh, because it tends to reinforce itself. Um, also, it it's true on a macro level in your own life because once your brain learns how to panic, it gets really good at panicking. And you can't really undo that. It's hard to, as far as I know, you mm -hmm. can't undo those neural pathways that mm -hmm. are carved through that first panic attack. So so how did you do it? Uh, well, multi-factorial approach. Um, the doctor who I ended up seeing really stresses a preventative approach. So um, it turns out that you're much less likely to panic if you're not taking cocaine on the regular. Um, <laughs> shocking. Shocking. <laughs> but but also actually just that that's somewhat facetious. I'm not facetious, but um, it's just also true that that if you take care of yourself, if you're getting enough sleep, if you're getting enough exercise, if you're doing all the annoying things your parents told you to do, you're much less likely to have a panic attack. So I have to do all of those things. My doctor used an animal analogy with me that I kind of misheard. I remember saying to him at one point, remember that time you told me I needed – Needed to treat myself like a stallion, and he said, "No, no, no. he said, no, no." I'm, I said, "Thoroughbred," but I, of course, heard stallion. Sure, why not? Uh, so, so the 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 point is, you know, we if you're like me and you have a pr proclivity for panic, yeah, you, you're kind of have to treat yourself like a very expensive, fidgety, finicky horse who you know needs a lot of care and feeding, and or like a ficus that you need to water and put in the sun. And that's just the way it is. So but so that's the preventative side. I uh, I also think meditation is part of that, although I'm not a meditation, even though I'm an evangelist for meditation, I'm not a meditation uh, fundamentalist. I don't mm -hmm. think it's like the only thing that's going to solve all of your problems. Mm -hmm. I think it's a very bad message to put mm -hmm. out that anything is the only thing. But meditation is also very useful because it's it, in, in being preventative mm -hmm. and because it just – you know, it can lower your blood pressure and boost your immune system and all sorts of good things and rewire key parts of your brain. And then the other thing I'd say is that medication is useful too. There's, I'm sure you're familiar with this, there's a non-narcotic uh, pill known as a beta blocker that mm -hmm. the primary use case is for people with hypertension. Mm -hmm. um, but it is also prescribed as sometimes called the stage fright drug. Mm -hmm. Non-narcotic, so it doesn't actually have any psychological effects. 
other than it puts a ceiling, a cap on how hard your yeah how high your heart rate can go. And so um, you might get nervous when you're on a beta blocker and in front of a large crowd of people, but you can't your heart your uh, your heart can't start racing. Right. And so that is that actually has psychological ramifications in that you know you've got this backstop when you walk out on stage. And so occasionally I will take a beta blocker. And it's the closest I've ever come to having a silver bullet in my life. Mm-hmm. It's really so useful. I'm going to share something uh, with you and our listeners that I've never, ever, ever shared uh, actually with anyone, even people that I'm closest to, which is that I have taken that beta blocker um, needed to take it after Rob's death when I went back on the air because I was so self-conscious about c- going back on air in front of five-plus million people of which a, some percentage knew that I had just had a suicide hit my family and I felt like they were going to be looking at me. And so it was. it's kind of interesting, though, Based, you described it perfectly, by the way. You can tell that you're the son of doctors married to a doctor. Um, what you described about a beta blocker for that purpose is 100% accurate. But the interesting thing for me is, um, and we're going to get, I'm going to geek out for a second in terms of dose, but a very, 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 very low dose of this particular beta blocker is 10 milligrams. When I went back on the air uh, six weeks after Rob's death, I was taking about one milligram. I mean, it was literally a crumb of this. And my father, who's a cardiologist and uses this beta blocker in a lot of his patients for cardiovascular reasons, said to me, Jen, you know, that's that's a placebo effect, right? <laughs> Which is not a useful <laughs> and thing I, to say No. To <laughs> and I said, no, I don't think so. I think all I need is one milligram. And he said, no, no, but that's that defies pharmacology. <laughs> There's no way one milligram is doing anything. But at that time, I really felt that it was. Um, so it it speaks to the bigger issue of living in a fishbowl, whether that's one like we do on on air, on television, or whether it's just in your fishbowl of life, mm-hmm. right? And, and the way people are looking at you. So let me ask you about 10% Happier. Where did you come up with that title? I wish it came about in the middle of a conversation with a senior producer at Good Morning America who had <laughs> known me forever and... When I got into meditation, which was this is the first time I've ever been ahead of a trend. So I started I got into meditation <laughs> before it was cool. Yeah, it was quite a bit actually before it became kind of hit the uh, mainstream in the way it has recently. And um, so there was a pretty heavy stink on meditation at that time. And I remember talking to an old friend of mine who was also a senior producer at Good Morning America. And she said, what kind of I can't remember exactly what she said. But it was something along the lines of what's the deal with you and this meditation thing? You know, what's kind of like, what's the matter with you? Why are you doing this? And I was trying to like kind of come up with a way to describe it that wouldn't sound crazy. And I said, oh, you know, because it makes me like 10% happier. And I could, the look on her face immediately transformed from scorn to mild interest. She was like, oh, all right, that makes sense. Now, do you think that if you had said it makes me 100% happier, she would have said, ugh, get away. She would have thought I've joined a cult. And that was my point. I was just trying to, I, as it happened, I was, it's very soon because I'm, you know, super ambitious and like ridiculously mm-hmm. um, crass, whatever. Mm-hmm. As soon as I started meditating I and reading all these books about it, I was very quickly, after I realized that it was personally useful to me, I thought of ways to, you know, turn it into a book. Right. Um, because, you know, that's the way I'm wired. Yeah. I'm not proud of it, but that's true. If I'm being honest, that's the truth. Mm-hmm. And so I was thinking a lot at this time, but how can I talk? I was reading all these meditation books and they were all very wise, but also very annoying. And I wanted to talk about meditation in a different way, using the F word a lot and telling <laughs> embarrassing stories. And so when I was, it was on my mind, how do I talk about, th- how can I re-language this whole thing? And so when Chris, uh, the aforementioned, GMA senior producer asked me that question and I said 10% happier. I actually knew in that moment, I was like, oh, that's the name of my book. Like I very quickly knew that I said something inadvertently smart. Which you do often, but. I don't know about that, but that's probably the smartest inadvertent comment of my life. So have you've become, you, you have become a guru now. Don't want, you just winced. I, Uh, I know that that's, 
that might be hard for you to accept, but that is, I think that's an accurate statement. Here's a title. Here's a title I'm more comfortable with. I'm not going to question your accuracy, okay. but I think, I think evangelist is a better. I I like that. Not in terms of. I'm not an evangelical Christian. I mean, I just mean that the, the evangelist is somebody who goes around spreading a gospel. Gospel mm-hmm. translate it translates into good news. Mm-hmm. And so my good news is that the mind is trainable. That all of the mental states we want, happiness, calm, peace of mind, connection, gratitude, uh, generosity, mm-hmm. are not factory settings that can't be changed. They're actually skills that are trainable. And that is what my job is to go around and use every outlet possible to tell people that in as many ways possible with my skills that have been given to me by my uh, my colleagues and superiors here at ABC News of storytelling and communication. That's my job. So is there a guru part of that in that maybe I can explain things to people? Um, sure, but I'm not, you know, I take very seriously what it takes to become a meditation teacher mm-hmm. and you're a physician. My wife's a physician. I've seen how much training goes into that. These people are doing even more than that. They're doing decades of silent meditation. Right. And in order to get into the hood of somebody else's mind and be able to work with them in that way, I don't have that kind of training. I can do sort of like shallow end of the pool stuff. Right. I like that analogy, shallow end of the pool. We're sitting here in the studio and your amazing poster, 10% Happier with Dan Harris is behind us. And I'm wondering if you guys, you're so prolific with these amazing books. Would you write a 10% unhappier ever? Like how to be unhappy well? N- yeah, or or just something that addresses sadness, something that addresses um, grief or unhappiness. Yeah, I think inherent in the 10% happier is that if you understand what I'm, what I mean by happier, because like wh- what I mean by happier isn't, you know, uh, one of the, you know, Fred Astaire and Ginger Robert, uh, Rogers dancing scenes. You know, it isn't we're all, you know, tapping our feet. It's more like uh, I once asked a friend of mine, a really smart friend of mine, how he would define happiness. His name is Dr. Mark Epstein. He's written a bunch of beautiful books about he's a psychiatrist and he writes about the overlap between psychology and Buddhism. And I asked him once, well, how do you define happiness? And he said, and this is going to sound simplistic more of the good and less of the bad by which he means if you think about life like a graph i'm terrible at math so <laughs> but if you think about the x axis which runs horizontally is the kind of happiness set point we all have and when when and uh, and then the y axis life is going up and down you know good things happen and our happiness level soars way above the happiness set point and then we tend to revert to the to the mean and then uh, bad things happen, we go below, but then we tend to come back to our set point. I think what I mean by overall happiness is not that no bad things happen to you ever again, that you're never sad again. It's just that the upper end of the curve is longer and higher, more sustained and higher because you're not so busy thinking about what's next for me. Uh, so you're able to actually enjoy the good stuff, and the bad, the bad end of the curve below the happiness set point, you're um, you're not engaged in so much useless rumination and unconstructive um, uh, anger, and so it's shallower and uh, less sustained, and you're able to revert back to your happiness set point more quickly. And I think, meanwhile, the other thing that happens as a consequence of meditation is that your happiness set point goes up. And so to me, 10% happier is just building this skill. And the 10% compounds annually, uh, just like any good <laughs> investment. You just get better and better at this over time. It does not mean um, that there is no sadness. It just means that the whole mess is held in a different way, and you get better at the skill of surfing the waves of life rather than drowning in them. And I'll just the last thing I'll say is that there's a really nice lyric by some musician friends of mine uh, who uh, the, the guy, it was a husband and wife team. They were called mates of state and they have the, they make really beautiful music. Uh, they both write the songs, but it, this was a song where the lyrics were written by the husband, my friend Jason, who went on to become a Buddhist, but wrote this lyric even before he became a Buddhist, which was things aren't going to get better, but they may get lighter. And that to me 
is what I mean by mm-hmm. happiness. Is that like you can't? I can't. You, the, the happiness does not mean you can control uh, the universe. Right. It just means that you're going to deal with whatever happens better. I've been honored to share my story with you and have such an amazing amount of guests on the show. Your feedback has helped us shape this podcast. This is going to be our final episode of season one. I hope you'll go back to the beginning and listen to all eight episodes and let us know what you'd like to hear on season two. My greatest gift for doing this podcast has been hearing from our listeners, how this discussion has made them feel heard for their own traumas and their successes. Please let us know if you found the podcast helpful to you personally. Keep in touch with me at DRJ Ashton on Twitter and Instagram. Please remember you're not alone. The Prevention Hotline is open 24-7 and it's free. Just dial 1-800-273-TALK or 1-800-273-8255. Trained counselors are available to talk to anyone who needs help. I want to thank the Life After Suicide team that helps put this podcast together. Eric Strauss, Ann Reynolds, Tara Gimble, Trevor Hastings, Josh Cohan, Andrew Kalb, and everyone at ABC News who's been so supportive of Life After Suicide. Thanks for taking this journey with us on Life After Suicide. Life After Suicide.